The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Greetings, everybody, and uh, welcome to our latest Provoke Media podcast. Uh, We are partnering with our good friends at the world's largest public relations agency, Edelman, and I am delighted to welcome as our guest today, Andrea Hagelgans, uh, Managing Director of Social Issues, and we're going to be discussing the way in which companies can and should, and in some cases must, engage with what's going on in society right now. Welcome. Andrea. Um, Andrea, why don't you tell people who you are and why you're here? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Andrea Higgelgans. I am a managing director and head of social issues engagement in the U.S. for Edelman and have a long um, history in politics, societal issues, and advocacy, and am delighted to speak with all of you about Um, the ways in which business is now engaging in society. And um, Angela has, uh, Andrea has has very kindly volunteered to touch the third rail of American politics, Um, not social security, but uh, but abortion in the wake of the Roe versus Wade um, decision from the Supreme Court recently. Um, So this should be fun um, and hopefully provocative um, as we like to be on these things. Um, I wanted to start though by, um, by going back sort of 30 years or, or so um, to 1990 uh, when I was um, just really starting out in the public relations journalism business in the US having worked in the UK for a while. And one of the first big stories that came along when I was uh, covering PR in New York involved a company called Dayton Hudson, which um, some of you will be old enough to remember. Um, Most of you won't, but uh, it evolved into what we all know and love as Target today. Um, And Dayton Hudson was a Midwestern retailer Um, with an active corporate philanthropy program and for the longest time had been giving money to a variety of nonprofits, including Planned Parenthood. Um, What had happened to make this newsworthy was that um, somebody in the legal department, it's always somebody in the legal department, somebody in the legal department had decided that giving money to Planned Parenthood might get the company in trouble. And so made a unilateral decision to rescind the grant. Um, Planned Parenthood was alarmed by that decision. Um, mobilized its supporters, many of whom um, immediately uh, cut up their Dayton Hudson credit cards and sent them back to the company. And um, and that prompted within Dayton Hudson a rethink of um, their decision. And they decided instead that they would reinstate the grant to Planned Parenthood. Um, I'm not giving out any prizes for guessing what happened next, which was people on the other side of the abortion issue decided that it was now their turn to cut up their Dayton Hudson credit cards and sent them back to the company. And so there was an equally violent uh, reaction, uh, violent in, in the 
meaning of um, abrupt and um, exhaustive rather than um, the kind of physical violence that you might expect to see around one of these issues today. Um, and Dayton Hudson found itself caught in the middle of um, the abortion wars, um, looking as if it was sort of constantly weighing the number of cut up credit cards that came in from the pro-choice side, um, the number of cut up credit cards that came in from the anti-abortion side, and trying to make a decision based on expediency and who would be loudest or quietest or whatever. And it was a pretty unseemly episode in corporate history um, for a company that had actually got a fine tradition of handling public relations in a progressive manner. Um, I was, sorry, this is a really long intro and I know everybody really wants to hear um, Andrea's voice rather than mine. Um, but I was reminded of the Dayton Hudson fiasco earlier this year when Disney in Florida uh, found itself um, similarly prevaricating over the don't say gay legislation that was going through and eventually passed the, the Florida Senate. And, um, you know, Disney, for those who weren't paying attention, I can't imagine that's many of you, um, Disney had um, given financial support to many of the politicians who were behind the don't say gay law. Uh, the company felt that it was um, appropriate to remain silent and not take sides. It received huge amounts of criticism internally and externally for that decision and eventually decided that it was going to not only get involved, but actually sort of take the lead in um, combating um, what it saw as an unjust and oppressive law. Um, and we can talk about the consequences of that decision as, as we go on. But um, my first question, I guess, is what has changed in the 30 years um, and what hasn't? How is it that 30 years on companies are still making the same sort of mistakes or looking you know, as inept as Dayton Hudson did 30 years ago. And what's what's different now in terms of the rules of this particular game? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. And, and thank you so much for um, that um, recap and reminder of how these issues have transpired for many decades. It has not been simply just a new outcrop from the last few years. Um, you know, I think what has changed is you are now seeing um, generational differences in what, uh, in particular, employees expect of their company. Um, our Edelman Trust Barometer shows that people actually want companies to engage more on societal issues, not less. Um, there is, you know, the, for so many years, there was this uh, rule that you don't want to overstep as a business and speak out on issues that might not be directly related to the business. And now there's a recognition that in particular, employees being in, in a driver's seat, in many instances, and a major stakeholder, they do expect their, the company that they work for to align with their values, whether that's on climate change or economic inequality or access to healthcare, which many would argue, and you can see this in the polling, 
uh, abortion, sex education, the services that Planned Parenthood provides are healthcare. It is not necessarily a political issue that people are going to Planned Parenthood for. And so what you're seeing now is a more engaged, um, more um, invested employee base, I believe, in, in understanding where a company is on an issue. Um, what hasn't changed, though, is um, the, the recognition that companies' purpose really should align with whatever they're engaging in. So it needs to be a credible conversation at this point. So um, if a company is going to go out and engage on an issue in the community, um, say it's about jobs and reskilling, uh, it needs to be really connected to, to the purpose of the company, which I'm pretty sure you could argue in, in many instances, reskilling would be one of those issues. Um, you know, the Disney example is a great example because it, uh, it identifies um, the, the challenges that companies have now is really understanding their purpose understanding how these issues connect into it, that it's not just some broad, nice platitude um, on a piece of paper, but in fact, it, you know, there are societal issues that need to connect into that purpose. And so that should help you figure out that framework. And then where your stakeholders are on the issue, and it's not simply just the boardroom, the CEO, and you know, um, the Twitterverse that you need to think about. You need to think about your employees. Um, your future employees as well, and the way in which you are standing by your values. Let me, I, I'm, we've all seen the surveys like the Trust Barometer um, that show that people have different expectations of organizations um, on social issues today. And I think that the needle has clearly moved a great deal. Um, I wonder though, whether we're in danger of interpreting those through our own lens of politics and social justice. I mean, you know, I think we all think, well, yes, there are lots of people out there who want Disney to engage um, with the, the don't say gay law or for companies broadly to engage on abortion. But presumably some number of those people who want companies to engage, want them to engage in entirely the opposite way that I want them to engage. I would like to see companies engaging um, to help women um, find ways to circumvent oppressive abortion laws. But what proportion of those people, do we have any way of knowing what proportion of those people actually would like to see companies helping to oppress women? Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, if you take the issue of abortion, which has been polled extensively since Roe v. Wade was first announced, uh, you know, this is probably one of the most polled issues possible. Um, you see very consistent support for abortion law, even in instances where you may personally oppose abortion. There is um, support for law that allows it to be legalized in some instances, not necessarily all instances, but in some instances. And so that's that's you know been pretty settled and continues to be, and you've seen that in more recent days as well since the Dobbs decision has come down. I think what what companies need to um, think through though is the range of responses is not simply silence or 
full-scale engagement um, and a PR campaign. There's a wide range of engaging a topic that's really critically important to analyze. And, and we do this through the work of our social issues navigator, but you know, certainly other companies have other frameworks. But you know, for example, um, I led our US task force in the lead up to the upcoming, to the decision around um, Dobbs. And you know, where you found many companies engaging was through their own policy benefits. And so they weren't necessarily going out and making a huge statement or, or even in some instances articulating a position necessarily on abortion and, and their values and their beliefs. Instead, what they were saying was, if we have provided this as a healthcare benefit previously, we're going to continue to provide that healthcare benefit regardless of where you live. Um, and so, you know, there's that option. There's certainly coalition options. You've seen a number of companies engage in around guns, more recently on abortion and some of these other topics, um, recognizing these as workforce issues that need to be really grappled with at the political policy level, but then also in local communities as well. And so I think I think where companies um, need to evolve their thinking in particular is understanding that um, you know, your government relations team can't just be thinking about the tax implications and those types of policies. They need to really be thinking about these societal issues with your chief communications officer and that team as well, because these are reputational issues. And then thinking through that whole continuum of how you might want to engage a topic. There are some instances where maybe you are just monitoring the issue for a time and engaging your employees and your other stakeholders so that you know if, if the issue kicks up, you may need to shift gears and become more active on it, whether internally or externally. I'm, I'm interested that, that you're talking about sort of workplace policies um, and, and using those as um, an alternative to, to making big vocal public statements about things, because that, that actually is probably um, a great way to respond to what I think has become the most vocal stakeholder group on this, which is the internal stakeholder, right? Company, and Disney certainly felt huge pressure from people inside the company. And we've seen similar things at Twitter and Facebook when it comes to um, sort of violent messaging and, and um, you know, provoking racial hatred on those platforms. We've, we've seen it elsewhere um, that employees feel much more empowered today, it seems to me, than they did 10, 15, 20 years ago to speak out about their company's political and social policies. Absolutely. I mean, you certainly see that in particular with Gen Z research. Um, research that Edelman just released, for example, shows that they are the very heavily driven as values uh, driven buyers, but also as employees as well. And what was most interesting I found about our research was that they also um, have an influence on older generations. So millennials and even like notorious cynical Gen X, which I'm a part of, um, they, because of their passion and the way in which they are, are articulating their beliefs about what companies should and should, be, should not be doing and how they view the workplace, they are able to influence other generations in your workforce. So it's really, really important to understand 
understand that you now have different dynamics in your workforce um, and you can't assume a monolith one size fits all um, a perspective that you know people come to work and they're just there to have a job and a paycheck and then they go home people are bringing their full identities to work they always have been it's just now they're feeling more bold to articulate that um, and so that's why it makes it even more critical for um, particularly ccos and the communications shop to be paired up with the, the HR team, with other internal stakeholder leaders as well, to really gauge that dynamic. Because, you know, in the instance of Disney, and certainly Disney won't be the last company that engages in, you know, some of these challenges. Um, knowing where your employee base may be, it may not change your decision on how you're going to engage or not engage an issue necessarily. But it certainly would be helpful to have that information and be armed so that you can plan a strategy around it. So that raises an interesting issue for me um, because, and, and maybe, maybe the, this isn't quite the dichotomy that I'm going to present it as, but it seems to me that there are two approaches that, that one could reasonably take as an organization to this. The first is what you were just talking about, which is to know what your stakeholder expectations are and um, to, to basically follow those expectations. So if you reach a point where a critical mass of your stakeholders, whether that's employees, customers, communities, or, or um, shareholders, believe that you should be actively involved in an issue, that's an issue that you choose to involve with. In other words, stakeholders decide you don't. Mm -hmm. um, the alternative to that would be to say, we are a values-driven company. These are the values that we believe in. One of those values is diversity. One of those values is equality. One of those values is freedom. Those values are clearly relevant to whatever the issue we're talking about is, whether it's abortion, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's gay marriage or, or um, teaching history in high school or being allowed to use the word gay in a classroom context. I mean, all of those things have implications that are tied back to an organization's values. Um, are there, are there sort of two different approaches to this or should you be aiming for a world in which your values and your stakeholder values are so closely aligned that they predict each other? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fascinating question. I think, I think what employees crave most is clarity on your values. And they want to see that it's not just an external statement, it's not just a marketing ploy, but it actually is something that the organization is living and breathing. And so, for example, um, for, you know, I've heard this um, with a number of clients where they will say that an employee says to them, you know, I just want to know where we stand on uh, fossil fuels. So that then I can make a decision for myself about whether or not this is the company that I want to be working for. And I think that is what um, we haven't always seen necessarily. Uh, companies do rather well. I think internal communications is, you know, an incredibly important field and helping companies sort of 
think through a framework for consistency. So it's not these ad hoc approaches as well. So for example, we saw so many companies speak out on Russia in invading Ukraine, causing the war, um, companies made business decisions, they articulated those business decisions, and they were doing humanitarian aid. These were all really important steps. And you saw, we saw it in our own um, trust data that, you know, companies that took those steps, they gained more loyal employees, they gained, um, you know, stronger reputations. But what was not often discussed was we would hear consistently that employees would say about a week later, so why did we speak out here and not in Syria and not in Afghanistan and other places? And that's where um, it's really, really important to recognize these issues are not going away and it can feel like a constant firestorm, but you can start to group some of these issues and recognize that you need to, you need to treat this as a business prerogative to understand what's happening in your backyard, in your state, what legislation is, is going through that may affect your stakeholder beyond just sort of typical business legislation and, um, and map it out and have that framework for when and how you're gonna engage. Yeah, the, the thing that is fascinating to me is you know, we keep coming back to Disney and I don't want to pick on Disney, um, but um, Disney was an example of this. this. It was an organization, you know, this is not the first time um, that big social issues have clashed with corporate values or the big social issues have, have demanded um, corporate engagement. Um, and yet, this was a company that very much seemed to be making it up as it went along. It did, you, you alluded to the idea of a framework. It didn't appear to have a framework for making this decision other than the, the CEO's gut feeling about what should or shouldn't be done. And I'm wondering, you know, have we made progress on this score? Do you have clients coming to you now saying, how do we develop this kind of framework? What does a decision tree look like for social issues? And how are you advising them to put that in place? What does it look like? How much does it vary from organization to organization, depending on risk tolerance, for example? Yes, um, and interestingly enough, I think, uh, you know, the leaked decision actually accelerated so many of these conversations. Um, so, you know, in early May, the Politico published the leaked draft, which then be ultimately- You're talking about the Supreme Court decision. Exactly, on abortion, yes. Yeah. You know, ultimately largely became the final draft as well. Uh, but companies as a result had about eight, six to eight weeks lead time in terms of really thinking through how they were going to think about this issue. And so we saw, we had started our task force actually last September when Texas passed its legislation banning abortion after six weeks. Um, but we saw it increase exponentially. And you know, once companies were able to have a conversation about abortion, it actually, as you alluded to in the very beginning, for some, it is the third rail. And so that that sort of opened the door saying, oh, we probably have a whole host of issues we need to be having these conversations about. And so, as I mentioned, we use a social issues navigator tool. Um, it's a new technology that we have developed. Um, but, you know, 
really the idea is bringing together different stakeholders from within the company so that it's not just the board and the CEO sitting in a room having their own, you know, lens. Everyone comes in with their own bias. It's just human nature, having their own emotions around a topic and then deciding. Um, that's really critically important, particularly in this world with diverse opinions where boards and CEO leadership still don't reflect that diversity in America. So it is absolutely essential that you gather the people within your organization to really think through these conversations. And so, you know, think through the impact of the issue on the business. You have to understand how it's going to affect your business. That's, you know, that's your number one priority, right, as a company. But also how this issue is going to align or conflict with your purpose and the role you play in society and what you have outlined um, to all of your stakeholders already. Knowing those expectations of your stakeholders and then your track record, and this is really important, um, your credibility on a topic. If you, uh, we saw this around pay equity issues and Me Too and everything else. Um, saw a lot of big pronouncements around, you know, women in the workplace. You see this every March. And then, then you go and you look at the pay internally at an organization, which employees know they all have their own conversations internally. And that's where you lose a lot of credibility with your stakeholders. So you have to understand where you can credibly speak on a topic or what work you need to be doing to be able to speak on a topic. Um, you certainly saw this after Black Lives Matter as well. It, it can't be a marketing stunt. Um, you'll be called out on that. You, you talked about um, get, getting internal stakeholders together and, and that raises an interesting question for me. I, I, you know, I tend to to see everything through the prism of public relations, and I tend to see this issue as being fundamental to relationships between organizations and their key stakeholders. Um, and that's, you know, if if it was up to me, public relations people would be in unilateral control of stuff like this, and CEOs would just nod and do whatever they were told. Um, clearly, that's not how the real world works. And my guess is that when an issue like this comes along, there is, in fact, the need for multiple departments within the organization, um, for multiple members of the management team with different purviews to get involved. Who, who needs to be in the room when these things are being discussed, other than the public relations or corporate communications people? What kind of coalition sure. is necessary internally? You know, I think it really depends on the issue, but, in, you know, and for some stakeholders to be in the room. But um, in general, what we have um, advised is to have your head of HR, your head of DE&I, um, always legal counsel, general counsel should be in the room um, to help you think through those. Maybe your board representative or, you know, if you are a nonprofit organization as well, maybe donor development folks, you know, things like that. You need to really think about, if you map out your, your stakeholders that you care about, figure out then who that representative is that should be in the room to, to be able to convey a perspective on that, you know, at Edelman, we go through this ourselves, and I participated in some of those um, conversations because we think it's really important. Um, we know we will be called, um, you know, for our perspective on issues and what we are doing for our employees as well. And so we need to live that as well. And so that's why it's, it's important to 
again, you know, my, my biggest takeaway is we are heading into a very intensive um, midterm season <laughs> in the United States. Um, you know, obviously there's um, huge geopolitical conversations happening right now. It is worth it to take that time, to take an afternoon and map out all of the issues that are keeping you up at night in society and, and then think through how you're going to tackle these as a company in terms of getting these stakeholders to the table to have the real conversations you need to have. You simply don't want to be having it the, the first time you get that media call. Right. So uh, that raises the question, what, what is next? What are, the, what are the big issues that companies need to have on their radar right now that they need to be using this process um, to think through? Um, obviously, there's been some speculation that gay marriage might be in the crosshairs of the Supreme Court. Um, there are all kinds of voting rights issues, um, which we sort of saw companies addressing after the insurrection of January 6th, when some political donations dried up for a brief spell. Um, you know, I, I had a conversation the other day about whether Clarence, Clarence Thomas could conceivably be the deciding vote on, um, if, if not overturning miscegenation laws, um, at least throwing them back to the states. I mean, which, which would be a bizarre situation, but it's, you know, nothing seems to be off the table right now. What's on the table? What are the next issues that companies need to need to be ready for yes i think i think it's a whole host of different issues which doesn't make their job any easier of course i think you know in your first bucket so to speak there are labor issues you've certainly seen this around um you know union unionization um, pay equity discussions, return to office. I, my belief is that that conversation is about a much bigger discussion about the role of work in our society. It's not necessarily because everybody wants to sit on their couch. Um, it's really about what is expected of a worker in the workplace. And um, so that's sort of one category um, that I think most companies are now dealing with. And I see this, whether you're a nonprofit to you know, uh, Fortune 500. Um, certainly, the the social issues that you've talked about. You know, there was a huge, huge raft of anti-LGBTQ legislation in the states last year. That will only continue um, because it is a political. Um, it, it's sort of red meat for certain bases of society, and we're heading into midterm elections. So even the whether or not it moves forward necessarily in some states, it's going to be thrown out there as a conversation, which means you need to know about it. Um, on abortion, we're seeing now real questions around data privacy and surveillance, um, law enforcement. Certainly there's been a firestorm in the media over the last 24 hours around um, the 10-year-old rape victim who then traveled to Indiana for an abortion, and that has raised questions about traveling between states as well. So you're going to see, um, you know, I think the Supreme Court had said they wanted this to go back to the states to, to help settle the issue, and I think this is, we're seeing the polar opposite of settling an issue for sure. So you're going to see a lot around those topics. And then I would say the third category is 
this this broader push on climate and ESG that you're seeing now, um, where companies had really sort of invested and adopted policies around climate action. Um, certainly the data shows that we absolutely need to be, it's existential at this point. Um, but you are seeing a, a very, you know, coordinated campaign to push back on that idea and to brand it as, you know, woke and all of these, you know, terms uh, designed to minimize um, and, and I think call into question, you know, whether these policies should be a business um, priority. And so you're going to see that debate happen um, both in the states with, you know, lawmakers crafting legislation to try and, you know, penalize companies, but also in the certainly the editorial pages of, of major newspapers. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that there is, um, and, well, two questions, I guess. First of all, do you think that companies um, view this as a nuisance and a distraction and wish that it would all go away? Or are some of them beginning to embrace it as an opportunity? And secondly, if they do see it as a distraction and wish that it would go away, um, do you see any way of getting the toothpaste back into the tube of, of reversing expectations of saying, you know, companies, companies shouldn't be expected to be woke and we're not going to be woke anymore and we're just going to run our businesses and everything else is outside of our purview? Is that, is that a realistic hope? Um, I think there's been some data that shows that CEOs wish it could go back in the the toothpaste. They they feel like it is, you know. Um, I wouldn't. I don't know necessarily if they feel it's a distraction, but it's certainly something that's pressing on them at a time when they're also dealing with supply chain issues and you know the basic functioning of, of business. Well, it changes. I mean, we didn't get into the. Sorry, we didn't get into this at all. But it changes what it means to be a CEO, right? Absolutely. I mean, it used to be that if you understood the the balance sheet and, you know, the the processes and, and operations of your organization, you were pretty much a good CEO. Today's definition of a good CEO is much different and much broader. We want people who have empathy now. Yes. Lord, that, that, was, that was a huge hindrance to being a CEO 20 years ago. Sorry. Yeah, I, and it I, might reflect why we're in this position, candidly, because there was no empathy. And, and now you're seeing a workforce that is really rebelling against outdated notions around work, for example. Um, I think... I think CEOs could can wish it away all they want, but to me that's wasted energy and they need to change their mindset. And just this is the reality moving forward. We live in a globalized society where information is shared, um, you know, experiences are shared, uh, you know, as storytellers, we know that, you know, the stories are driving conversations today. And so it's, you know, those CEOs that have, um, really internalized a company's purpose and the value system and uh, understand it, I think spend a lot less energy, um, you know, trying to figure out how to make a decision that's going to, you know, please everyone and instead can chart a course um, that, yes, will have some bumps in the road, but ultimately over the long term are not going to have the reputational hits that you might have if you sort of ping pong back and forth around an issue. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it just seems to me, and we'll, we'll wrap this up with this thought maybe, um, this is just part of what leadership is today, right? Both, both personally as a CEO and as an organization that wants to be perceived as a leader, as an organization that wants to be perceived as important and meaningful and relevant and resonant in the world. This is just now a new dimension of leadership and you either embrace it um, or you fight against it. And to your point, fighting against it is futile and counterproductive at, at this point. Absolutely. I think, you know, whereas before the, the assumption always was silence was the safest bet, I think you should now really recognize that there is as much risk in inaction as there is in action. And we have seen a number of companies who've been late in speaking out or have failed to, to speak out or understand and, and, as you said, empathize on the issue. Um, and that has really caused reputational damage that's, that's really, you know, can be quite challenging to overcome for years. Okay. Um, I think we're probably out of time. Um, but um, I also think we could probably keep talking about this um, at its various dimensions um, for a lot longer. It is a fascinating topic. It has to be keeping a lot of CEOs and a lot of CCOs awake nights. And um, hopefully the discussion that we've had over the last 35, 40 minutes um, will give them um, some food for thought and um, some impetus to, uh, to put that kind of framework we were talking about in place, because I think without it, companies look rudderless and, um, and aimless and unprincipled. And that's, that's the worst, as you say, that today is the worst situation of all. So thank you so much. Um, really great discussion. Um, hopefully it'll start a bit more of a conversation around this topic. Um, and hopefully we'll see companies handling the next crisis, whatever that turns out to be, better than they handled the last one. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.